The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So I do think that it is notable just how much overlap there is between this and the January 6th indictment substantively. Um, certainly, as we've said, this is broader. There are specific areas where it goes into a lot more detail. Um, but the general gist uh, is the same. And it's actually, I was really struck by how the opening paragraph of this indictment, I think, is is almost the same as the opening paragraph of, the, of Jack Smith's January 6th indictment. They both essentially say Donald Trump lost the 2020 election and then he tried to hold on to power. And so the broad strokes are quite similar. Um, and that does make me wonder what it will look like not only to have four trials going on uh, around the same time, potentially, but also two of those trials touching on substantially similar uh, fact patterns and, and probably witnesses as well. Both this and the federal January 6th indictment really touch at the heart of what's so troubling about Trump's continued presence in American political life and as a presidential candidate. Um, and there, especially if the Georgia trial is able to go to trial in six months, as Willis said she was hoping to do, I don't know how realistic that is. Um, it seems pretty clear that one way or another, they're going to be very, very tangled up in one another. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 15th, 2023. It was a late night last night as District Attorney Fonnie Willis of Fulton County, Georgia, sought and received an indictment against Donald Trump and about a million other people, or uh, 18 to be precise, The indictment alleged a racketeering enterprise involving the 2020 election, efforts to overturn it in Georgia and elsewhere. It covers a huge range of conduct, and uh, uh, we're going to go through it all. Joining me before a live audience in the virtual jungle studio is Lawfare Senior Editor Scott R. Anderson, Lawfare Senior Editor Quinta Jurassic, and our Fulton County correspondent, Anna Bauer, who was in the court last night as the indictment was handed up. Let's start there. Anna, you had a bit of a crazy day. Just give us a sense of the day. How did it go and uh, what happened in court? Oh, it was a wild day. Um, and I'm still exhausted from from experiencing it. 
Um, you know, Ben, we expected that the indictment would likely be handed up on Tuesday rather than Monday. So I was actually down the road working on it and uh, learned from other reporters that um, things were moving uh, quite quickly and that witnesses were coming in. You know, there was a there were some witnesses that we knew had been subpoenaed and reporters were staking out to see them go into the grand jury room. Um, so when I learned that the witnesses were kind of going in, you know, more quickly than we thought, um, I kind of hightailed it over to the courthouse and, uh, you know, they ended up bringing in um, the witnesses that they needed. Uh, from what I understand, um, they did not end up needing every single witness that they had subpoenaed. Um, but they didn't finish with uh, the grand jury presentation until uh, I believe it was around eight o'clock. Um, and, you know, the courthouse typically closes at five, but they kept it open um, and they kept the uh, presiding judge, Judge McBurney, there after hours so that they could still in that same day deliver the indictment and hand it up and have it filed. Um, so around 8.30 that evening, um, you know, the clerk walked it down to uh, Judge McBurney's courtroom, handed it up. Um, there was some confusion amongst reporters about, uh, you know, how many indictments uh, involved the Trump case. Uh, it turned out that the grand jury that morning had heard some other cases. So um, although there were 10 indictments delivered by the grand jury that day, only one involved the Trump case. And as we know now, that case has 19 co-defendants, including Trump. Um, and so, you know, then we kind of waited around in the clerk's office and occupied the clerk's office waiting to see what we could find out. Uh, we were there for some time. Um, and then finally, you know, the indictment hit the docket and around, I want to say 11 or 1130, Fawny Willis finally held a, a press conference. Um, so it really was a long day. I don't, I didn't get back until, um, you know, one o'clock in the morning, I think. Um, but, uh, it, it was certainly, I think worth the wait. All right. Uh, Quinta, you have now had time to give the indictment an initial read, which is all any of us has had time to do. It's 96 pages, uh, and we only kind of just got it. What are your initial thoughts on it? So it seems very much in line with uh, what Anna had kind of told us to expect from a Fonnie Willis Rico special. Um, Willis has a reputation, I understand, for bringing sort of big, sprawling RICO cases um, against uh, a group of Georgia teachers. Um, there's also currently jury selection going on in another big RICO case, the YSL Young Thug prosecution. Um, and this, Anna, correct me if I'm wrong, seemed very much to be in line with that. Um, there are a lot of charges. There are a lot of defendants. There is uh, extensive use of Georgia's unusually broad RICO statute. Um, I think one of the things that jumped out at me is something that a lot of folks have noted, uh, which is the fact that this incorporates not only the efforts to put together a slate of fake electors and to bully um, election officials, um, but it also incorporates uh, 
the attacks on Ruby Freeman um, and her daughter, Shay Boss, um, who were the poll workers in Georgia who Rudy Giuliani and others associated with the Trump campaign falsely alleged had been swapping votes or engaging in some other kind of chicanery. And there had been reporting previously about how a number of people, including weirdly a uh, I think a PR person for Kanye West um, or the artist formerly known as Kanye West uh, had sort of gone and tried to bully Freeman into admitting falsely that she'd been involved in some kind of election shenanigans. Um, And that's in here. Um, And that woman, I believe, is charged. Uh, And so that's sort of very much folded into the story that Willis is telling about the broader picture of what happened here. Um, in that way, I think it's fair to say it has takes kind of a wider aperture than the indictment about January 6th brought by Jack Smith, which focuses pretty narrowly on a limited group of people over a limited time frame. Um, the other thing that really jumped out at me is the fact that this doesn't only talk about Georgia. Obviously, it focuses on Georgia. Um, and things that took place in Fulton County specifically. But there's a fair amount of discussion of efforts to bully election officials in different states, including Michigan and Arizona are the two that immediately come to mind. There's an extensive section about what happened to Rusty Bowers, who is the Arizona Republican uh, Speaker of the House, um, and who testified in front of the January 6th committee. And so that's another way in which it has kind of a, it takes a very broad view of the conduct at issue. Um, Anna will know better than I will um, how that sort of use of charging out-of-state conduct fits into uh Georgia law. My understanding is that that is something that has taken place in the past under the RICO statute. Um, But that struck me as interesting insofar as uh, this isn't just focused on Georgia. It's sort of telling a much larger story about Trump's interference in state affairs across the country. Yeah. So that really, I want to focus on that for a second before we uh, go to Scott about the, the, rather astonishing array of charges here. But, you know, you said something really interesting that I want to drill down into, which is that this takes a broader aperture than the federal January 6th uh, case. That's a little weird, right? Because it should be taking, or at least you'd expect it to sort of take a narrower aperture because this is a county prosecutor in a single county in a single state who is now taking a broader aperture than, you know, the special counsel appointed to investigate the political echelon of January 6th from a kind of Washington perspective. So uh, give us your sense of like, is that because Fonnie Willis has delusions, delusions of grandeur? Is that because Jack Smith is a hidebound Picayune guy who's focused on stuff too narrow, or is there some other explanation for why the the you know the local prosecutor has the broader aperture than the federal special counsel? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, part of it may be that. I don't know. Funny Willis has a lot of chutzpah. Um, not to say that that Jack Smith doesn't necessarily. Um, I do wonder how much of it has to do with just the specific 
tools that are available. Um, so like we've said, the Georgia Rico statute is really broad. Um, if you tried to charge Trump's actions under the federal Rico statute, I'm not an expert, but I'm reasonably certain that that would not go particularly well. Um, there's also all kinds of counts in the indictment that are very specific to Georgia law, such as, for example, um, I don't have the exact language in front of me, but uh, encouraging a, or conspiring to encourage a, a state official to violate their oath of office. Um, you know, that's kind of something that under federal law, uh, Ben, you and I have spent a great deal of time writing about how the oath of office is something that, in our view, Trump routinely violated and encouraged others to violate. But we wrote that's something that is fundamentally non-justiciable under federal law. Um, I'm again, I'm not familiar with the relevant Georgia statute, but it seems like it is justiciable and it can be charged as a crime under Georgia law. And so I think that there just may be a difference there in terms of how Georgia criminal law is structured as opposed to federal criminal law. Um, I, I would say also, I mean, the other thing that I wonder is just a kind of whether there's some kind of difference in the fact that uh, Willis is an elected prosecutor, whereas Smith obviously has been appointed by Merrick Garland, who is himself a, you know, not elected and in that way is sort of doubly insulated um, from public opinion. Um, so there's a perhaps an, an element of that there. Um, but beyond that, I mean, I don't know. It certainly seems like it's a real difference in sort of prosecutorial style. Um, and that may just have to do with sort of, in addition to everything that I identified, you know, frankly, cultural differences um, between the Department of Justice and the Fulton County DA's office. All right. Scott Anderson, uh, talk to us about the charges. Uh, and uh, I got to say, unlike the Jack Smith indictment, this is a kind of hard one to read. It reads like a giant, undifferentiated mass of facts being thrown at you. Um, you know, people like to, everybody likes to use the term speaking indictment now to describe federal indictments that tell a story. Uh, this one doesn't seem to be so much a speaking indictment as a yelling indictment. It, it just kind of bombards you with a lot of facts that you then have to kind of figure out what to do with or what Fonnie Willis is trying to do with. Um, what do you make of it and uh, what charges have caught your eye here? Sure. I mean, I think the way to think about it and the best way I think to explain why the indictment's written the way it is, is to understand, I think that the DA's office is actually kind of prosecuting along two tracks. One is the RICO story that I think Quinta just told well, which is that there's a broad reaching conspiracy statute where you can pull in a lot of facts under one offense. It's actually very similar to what the special counsel did in the January 6th indictment, at the federal level, right? He had three different conspiracy provisions and he pulled in a ton of facts under these three criminal charges and three criminal provision, four provisions, technically three kind of counts. Um, focusing because the conspiracy was so far reaching, lots of facts were relevant, lots of things were potentially over acts. Here, the actual, what we're kind of thinking of as the facts actually is the uh, articulation and justification of the only the first count, which is the only count related to the Georgia Rico statute that says here's 161 overt acts that at least one member of this conspiracy, which includes all 19 defendants, did to further this conspiracy. That's a necessary element of proving that offense, right? 
All 19 plus 30 unindicted co-conspirators. Plus 30 unindicted co-conspirators. Yeah, a very, very broad-reaching conspiracy. And and others known and unknown to the grand jury. That is part of the broad scope, uh, right? That's a tool that the, we've seen you know, used by prosecutors, again, including Jack Smith and others, saying, here's because you have a conspiracy that encompasses a huge range of potential actions, I can tell a very broad story about it. But then you have the other 40 charges. The other 40 charges are very different. They don't creep outside of Georgia, right? They're all Georgia-related and Georgia-specific, one, one or two exceptions, which I'll, I can mention in a second. And they tar- target very specific types of conduct in incredibly specific ways to the point that they are really dr- drilling in and bringing very specific charges for different meetings that happen on different days or with different parties. Or in one case, uh, as I, I think is most indicative of this, charging, bring two different counts for knocking on Ruby Freeman's door and then knocking on her neighbor's door. And that being two different criminal offenses that happened back to back on the same day. Um, so it's really a much more detailed, nitpicky, super focused on the facts set of charges. And it's worth breaking those up, I think, into a couple of different groups to understand how the DA's office is approaching it. The majority of the other 40 charges focus on efforts to lobby Georgia state officials in different ways to persuade them to uh, overturn the elector results, right, to appoint their own alternate slate of electors. This is done through a number of hearings, usually mostly between December 2020. I think they bleed a little bit into early January. Um, This also includes the Raffensperger call and then that 2021 letter uh, from September 2021 that is now has two different criminal counts charged to it, which basically did the same thing that Trump and Giuliani and other people had tried to do a year earlier just in written form, which seems regrettable now in hindsight that it's the basis of these charges and they have it in writing um, that they made these false statements. These charges are mostly things about soliciting a public official to do something in violation of the oath that Quint has already mentioned, mostly an array of false statements related related charges, basically saying all these things you're saying to these people are false. Um, uh, and a couple of other little charges along the way um, about the specific ways these requests or information were delivered to different officials. Notably, this does include kind of two interesting charges. One is against Jeffrey Clark, um, specifically relating to what we know from the indictment and from the, the January 6th committee's activities. He was engaged in, in D.C. trying to get the Justice Department to make an official statement specifically about Georgia's elections to undermine their credibility and make a case to, for overturning them. While that was unsuccessful, they essentially charge him with conspiring to attempt uh, or with attempting to bring these sorts of false statements and pursue this sort of action that would undermine the electoral viability. They also bring charges against John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani for false statements made actually in a court filing. Um, But all these are part of this big effort of false statements and false lobbying of officials. Then you have a second tranche, which is the false elector scheme. This is a variety of cases where people actually filed false documents, made false false claims, said a bunch of things saying we are the false electors or we're pursuing this alternative legal process about the false elector scheme that we can get more into. But there's a whole set of charges there that's kind of a slightly overlapping, but mostly different set of much more local actors than that first set of charges, which includes Trump, Giuliani, Jennifer Ellis, and sort of other people we're kind of familiar with from the broader national story. The third tranche is the Ruby Freeman intimidation story, um, which relates to efforts to intimidate slash kind of persuade her to come along with the story and support these claims of election fraud um, through a variety of actors in kind of two different phases, one in late 2020, one in very early 2021. Um, 
Then we have another Toronto story about Coffee County uh, that relates to accessing voting machines there, um, something Anna is very familiar with and, and uh, has is, is working on, uh, writing on right now, I know. Uh, and so we'll get into that, let her get into that a little bit more. That's a separate set of charges that includes some false statements, some false filing of documents, also a related uh, an array of state charges related to computer crimes and computer access uh, and fraud in relation to that. Also defrauding the state uh, is a charge brought in that context. And then finally, we have the last two counts, which are uh, what we have come to expect in longstanding investigations like this investigations related crime. So basically false statements made to investigators. Uh, this is 40 and 41 were two individuals, um, I believe both state level uh, Republican former Republican Party officials and state officials were in, are charged with having made false statements or committing perjury um, in before the grand jury as part of this investigation. So that kind of gets us through all our charges. We can dig deeper in any of those. But as we can see, there you have the RICO thread, which is charge one. And then the subsequent 40 are very, very detailed, specific charges under state law for much more specific conduct. So you're kind of doing the high level and the low level combined into one document. Right. So I want to, I want to, again, focus on that dichotomy, you know, going back to the, the, the aperture question with Quinta, this indictment seems to vacillate between the highest of high politics, meetings at the Justice Department, meetings at the White House, the president doing X, you know, uh, um, stuff that we've, you know, the January 6th committee, uh, you know, really spent a lot of time on and then sort of the lowest of the dirty, you know, people knocking on Ruby Freeman's door and her neighbor's door, um, uh, you know, computer theft. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But um, again, the there does seem to have been a decision, and I'm curious, Scott, why you think she did it to do both, right? She could have just stopped after charge one. Um, that would have been the Jack Smith approach, right? You lay out the big conspiracy, you name everybody. What work are these other 40 charges doing? So I, I actually think it makes sense if you think about it from the perspective of the DA. If same thing, in a lot of ways, I actually think the more detailed, specific charges make more sense for the DA to pursue than the broader sort of broad scheme one. Um, here, these were all parts of a broad national effort. It makes sense to bring that narrative in to lend weight to the scheme to understate that. Yeah, it may seem minor that Rudy Giuliani lied at this one hearing, for example, but it's part of this much bigger scheme and was contributed to the much bigger whole deliberately, and it needs to be viewed that way and considered in terms of of its potential criminal liability that way. So you want that broader narrative. But the more specific charges are much more relevant to the state of Georgia, honestly. Um, because while, yes, this was part of a big national conspiracy that extended into the state, that might not be true in lots of other cases. Uh, remember the Coffee County scheme, the fake elector scheme? Yeah, they had inputs from national figures and encouragement. But a lot of them are also substantially grown in the state of Georgia, right? These are actions other people could try and take again in the future. And by pursuing both tracks, you're saying, yeah, it was bad and warrants special weight, perhaps in this case, that this was part of a broad, broad conspiracy and coordinated effort. But it's also worth bearing just doing these things in isolation is also a problem. Even if all you do is try and intimidate one election worker like Ruby Freeman, that's in violation of the law. And as a district attorney, she has an incentive to, to make the case saying these actions, even in isolations, are criminal and wrong, and we will prosecute you for them. 
And that's why I think you see this dual track. It's the perceptive perception and perspective, not of a special counsel assigned a national mandate, but of a working district attorney who's thinking about much more grassroots crimes probably than even most Justice Department indictments really are, are thinking about. Um, uh, and, and from that perspective, it does make a lot of sense to me. It could raise some concerns and open sort of certain criticisms, and we can get into those, but I, the strategy makes sense in combining those two elements at least. Yeah, I want to throw in another explanation or possible explanation and see what you think about it. Um, you know, the first charge is going to require a lot of litigation. It's going to get, there's going to be an issue about removing it to federal court. Uh, we'll, we can, we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, you know, there's going to be an issue about whether it state really states a claim under, under Georgia's RICO law. When you look at the first, the the essential claim of the racketeering conspiracy, it, it's actually a rather extraordinary statement. It it says that the I, I don't have it exactly in front of me, but you know it says that the the Trump organization, the, the the Trump campaign and the presidency and the senior levels of the Justice Department and the fake electors were all part of a criminal organization. And that criminal organization functioned as an organization within the meaning of Georgia RICO law. You know, that's going to get challenged and they're going to have to justify that. Um, and uh but including these separate charges that said, hey, you knocked on Ruby Freeman's door, you knocked on Ruby Freeman's neighbor's door. That means I've got you dead to rights on witness tampering and you know witness interference, whether that first charge holds up against the lot of you or not. And so, you know, let's you better come in and have a conversation about pleading and cooperating at this point. I think that's probably right. Um, you know, I will note, I think some of the more specific charges run into potential issues on the other end of the spectrum, um, because when you're charging very specific, specific events, it is easier to maybe try and cast them as, again, something closer to political speech or First Amendment protected activity, um, or to trivialize them in kind of the court of public perception, even though it shouldn't make a difference before the law about saying, you know, they're, she's trying to prosecute someone for knocking on a door. The DA isn't serious. Um, so I think there's actually kind of legal risk on both ends of this. I'm not sure it's entirely avoidable. Um, but I do think that between the two, she, she is trying to cover her bases. It's belt and suspenders uh, in bringing these parallel charges. Um, much in the same way Jack Smith brought three different conspiracy charges for the same conspiracy. She's alleging both a broad conspiracy and a set of narrower state level conspiracies and other acts. Um, and so it is, it is belt and suspenders thing that way, certainly. All right. So uh, I want to talk about Coffee County. Uh, and uh, for those of you who don't know, which is to say all of you, um, Anna has spent the last uh, inordinate number of weeks working on uh, a crazily long and detailed piece about uh, Coffee County. And the theory of this piece was that this was the sleeper issue that was actually going to show up in a big way in this indictment. We meant to get it out last week before the indictment, but we, uh, you know, we had a lot of I's to dot and T's to cross. Uh, it's going to come out uh, within a few moments of the end of this this live stream. 
Uh, Anna, why is Coffee County important and what happened there? Um, and why did, why did you become convinced that this was going to feature so prominently as it in fact does in this indictment? Um, so in terms of what happened in Coffee County, um, so on January 7th, um, this was the day after uh, the events of January 6th, but the this um, uh, the January 7th events in coffee had kind of been set in motion long before that day, um, if you, uh, as my piece will kind of explain. Um, and on on January 7th, um, a group of uh, people that include some of the charged individuals here, uh, Misty Hampton, who is the election supervisor in Coffee County, uh, Scott Hall, who's a bail bondsman from Atlanta, who, you know, became involved in the Trump campaign following the 2020 election, um, and Kathy Latham, who at that time was the chairwoman of the Coffee County GOP, um, they uh, went to the elections office in Douglas, Georgia on the 7th. Um, they were met there by a forensic firm called Sullivan and Strickler, which is based in Atlanta. Um, and, and they subsequently, uh, you know, the, the forensics firm subsequently copied uh, the data and equipment software of the elections office, um, virtually all of the kind of software and data that was in the elections office at the time and that is um, used in Georgia's elections and used in other states as well um, in terms of the software that is used on the Dominion machines. Um, and it is alleged um, in the indictment and in other court filings uh, that I've reviewed that, that that software was then, you know, distributed to people in other states and um, accessed by, by people who um, um, had access to it on a share file site. Um, this is, you know, something that people who I've talked to about election security have said is very concerning because it's something that allows people who maybe would want to attack our elections systems, election systems to be able to kind of test out uh, the software for, you know, where it's vulnerable. So it's been a an issue that has concerned some election security activists for some time, and a lot of it the story kind of came out in the civil litigation. Um, and then now here we we see it in the indictment. Um, it, it uh, you know, I believe that at the time, many, many months ago, when, when these uh, circumstances started to kind of come out in the civil litigation, people kind of portrayed it as these, you know, rogue election officials who wanted to access voting equipment. Um, but, you know, the subsequent litigation and reporting suggested that Sidney Powell had a hand in, you know, making an engagement letter and paying for, for the work of Sullivan and Strickler and accessing the equipment. Um, you know, we see in the indictment that Scott Hall, who was one of the individuals involved, had communications with Jeffrey Clark and other uh, campaign officials. 
Um, you know, the, I, you will see in my piece, if anyone, if anyone cares to read it, um, that there, there's some, uh, other suggestions that, you know, Rudy Giuliani in, in a December 18th meeting had discussed, you know, plans to access voting equipment in Georgia. So it kind of became this thing where, um, as we learn more about the events of January 7th uh, in Coffee County, um, there was there was kind of some uh, suggestion that, you know, it wasn't just these um, uh, uh, local uh, Douglas, Georgia folks who uh, kind of were independently making these plans, but perhaps there was a connection to um, to others in the Trump campaign and to Trump's inner circle. Um, so there, there was some sense that that maybe um, this would be something that Fonnie Willis would include in the indictment. We knew from some of the material witness certificates that were issued during the special grand jury investigation that they were looking at plans to access voting machines. They, they included those statements in filings uh, when they subpoenaed people like Sidney Powell, um, we also knew that uh, Scott Hall, who was the bail bondsman, had testified before the special grand jury. So we certainly had some idea um, that coffee would be included. But the question was, you know, who would be included? What would be uncovered? Um, and, and, you know, what would be the connections to the Trump campaign or to other Trump world officials? Um, and in the indictment, uh, it is alleged that, you know, it's Sidney Powell it is Misty Hampton, it is Kathy Latham, um, and it is Scott Hall who are included. You know, there were others who were involved in the breach. Um, I think that maybe Fonnie Willis would have some jurisdictional issues, uh, some venue issues with including those folks. Um, and, and I'm not sure, you know, what other prosecutorial decisions went into setting who would be charged, but um, that's kind of a summation of, of what happened and, and what's included in the indictment. I mean, it seems to me the significance of Coffee County in the broader scheme of things is twofold. The first is that this, you know, this group of people um, and Fonnie Willis definitely connects it to the Trump campaign, she or to Trump. It, it's alleged to be part of the same criminal conspiracy, part of the same, in her the formulation, pattern of racketeering activities. Um, they went in and they stole public computers and, um, they just, you know, essentially got access to election systems and imaged them and stole the data. And there's, you know, it's awfully close to simple theft. But the, the second thing is they are now, all of this was being done in the name of preventing election fraud. And they are now charged with, among other things, conspiracy to commit election fraud. And I, I think there's a, there's a kind of remarkable degree to which, you know, whatever the motivation, whether these people honestly believed the election was stolen or whether they were trying to conduct a coup, um, they, they ended up doing stuff that's just really simple, like election fraud or attempted election fraud, tampering with voting systems, destroying voting systems and stealing stuff. 
And I, I really think there's something interesting about this gets to the granular level. You know, this is one rural county that realistically Jack Smith is not going to care about all that much and may not have jurisdiction over. But Fonnie Willis, though she's also out of county, you know, she can, you know, can care more about what happens in some rural Georgia county than maybe federal prosecutors are going to. All right, so Quinta, zooming out for a minute, um, uh, let's let's go back to the you know from from the narrow picture to the 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 broadest sweep here. Um, Fonnie Willis was expected to be first. She is now last in a very crowded field of people who want to prosecute Donald Trump, some of them more than once. Um, uh, where do you think this fits into the larger picture of Trump litigation, specifically criminal litigation, uh, over the year and a half that he's going to be running, or the year and a bit that he's going to be running for president. Well, I don't know if we should say last um, because we don't we don't know <laughs> what what more could be coming. I know Scott is still holding out for an indictment in uh, Bedminster, New Jersey. Uh, <laughs> Happy to give a shout out. Yeah. Um, so I do think that it is notable just how much overlap there is between this and the January 6th indictment substantively. Um, certainly, as we've said, this is broader. There are specific areas where it goes into a lot more detail. Um, but the general gist uh, is the same. And it's actually, I was really struck by how the opening paragraph of this indictment, I think, is is almost the same as the opening paragraph of, the, of Jack Smith's January 6th indictment. Um, they both essentially say Donald Trump lost the 2020 election and then he tried to hold on to power. And so the broad strokes are quite similar. Um, and that does make me wonder, you know, what it will look like not only to have four trials going on uh, around the same time, potentially, but also two of those trials touching on substantially similar uh, fact patterns and and probably witnesses as well. Um, our executive editor, Natalie Orpet, who gives her apologies for not being able to be here currently, uh, has written a really great piece on Lawfare about the complications that come um, from these kinds of multiple concurrent trials um, and a podcast episode as well with Brandon Fox. Um, and my takeaway from that is really just there is not a good way to coordinate this kind of thing. Um, which is sort of irritating, but also more than that can cause problems, not only for the defense, but for the prosecution as well. Um, I spent an inordinate amount of time yesterday trying to run down what happens if, for example, you had uh, somebody who was uh, potentially exposed to criminal liability in both Georgia and in the federal January 6th prosecution, what would happen if they were offered immunity in one prosecution, but not the other the answer seems to be, um, though no, this isn't true 100% of the time, that in most circumstances, if, say, Fonnie Willis offered you immunity, Jack Smith could still then prosecute you on the basis of the testimony that you gave under um, 
under that immunity and vice versa, um, federal to state as well, which may mean that it's actually going to be a lot harder for prosecutors to get witnesses to talk uh, because they're going to be really holding out um, for immunity on all fronts um, or otherwise pleading the fifth, for example. And that just creates problems. (laughs) Uh, You can see that it could make things really, really difficult. Um, On the other hand, um, you could also imagine how uh, I'm assuming at this point that the federal trial will go first. I don't know that. Um, That, you know, if there's a bunch of stuff that's already sort of on the record when it comes to the federal trial, that that could potentially be make Fonnie Willis's job a little bit easier when it comes to prosecuting the Georgia trial insofar as they'll be able to kind of point to that. that, that's my understanding, at least from talking to a practitioner in Georgia, and I don't know if you think otherwise. Um, so there are sort of pros and cons there, but I think the long and short of it is that both this and the federal January 6th indictment really touch at the heart of what's so troubling about Trump's continued presence in American political life and as a presidential candidate. Um, and there, especially if the Georgia trial is able to go to trial in six months, as Willis said she was hoping to do. I don't know how realistic that is. Um, It seems pretty clear that one way or another, they're going to be very, very tangled up in one another. All right. So let's talk about some issues that are unique to this litigation. uh, And let's start with the issue of removal. Um, In one of the things that we can expect that Trump will try to do, he tried to do it in New York and failed, is get this case removed from Fulton County Court, uh, Georgia State Court, and into federal court. Uh, first of all, Scott, why why are we so sure that Trump will want to be in federal court? Um, and uh, give us a little a little information about the Uh, process of removal, how it works. And then, Anna, you've studied the question of removal with possible reference to this specific case. So what do you think the prospects of of, uh, the Trump case getting removed to federal court are? Scott first and then Anna. Sure. I'm going to largely defer to Anna on the mechanics and, and the specific case, because I I, there, I think there are probably nuances about this case and perhaps the Georgia context I'm not uh, fully versed in. Um, in terms of why you would want to do it in this case, you know, it's a question of treatment by judges, treatment by jury pool, uh, a variety of strategic reasons as to say how you want to actually um, approach and will, how you think you're going to be treated by the people um, adjudicating this case uh, on kind of non 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 substantive final matters like the judge and then the jury ultimately on the actual criminal liability um, and so the idea of removal generally as we see in lots of other contexts is to ins- provide an option by which certain actors who may feel they are at a disadvantage in a locality can remove to be treated in federal courts where in theory there are more federal checks to protect nationwide interests and so local prejudices or biases are are less a concern. Um, so that's that seems to be the main reason they might try and remove um, uh, and are likely would. There's also, frankly, an optics reason because it it provides a way to spin and suggest that somehow the DA did something wrong. That's not really the case. Removal is a reason option provided in federal law deliberately. Um, it's a fine thing that the DA brings charges and then they get removed. Uh, that's by design. Um, but I suspect it will be a talking point to say that somehow uh, Fannie Willis has done something wrong if it is removed. Um, although, again, I, I don't think that's accurate. Anna, 
uh, why don't I hand over to you to take the lead on the, the nuances of this? Yeah, and I don't want to get too in the weeds on the kind of legal questions that will be raised um, under the removal statute. Um, but I, I will just say generally, you know, the question is whether or not um, the case can be removed is based on whether the federal official, the conduct that is alleged in the criminal indictment is something that the federal official, you know, did under their lawful or under color of law at, through their federal office. Um, and then, you know, they are now being prosecuted for under under the state law. Um, I, I think that there um, is uh, an argument that Trump maybe will be able to remove this case to federal court um, because the bar is so low for removal. You kind of just have to show that you have a um, you know plausible claim to removal. Um, you know, so we suspect that Trump will kind of, you know, try to say that he, you know, was doing, um, taking these actions, you know, under color of law through the office of the presidency, um, and he will potentially raise a federal defense of supremacy clause immunity, you know, saying he really did believe there was fraud and he was investigating fraud and um, kind of make a very general argument in, in that respect. Um, he might cite to um, something like the, the take care clause of the Constitution, as he did um, in the New York removal action. Um, uh, by, you know, saying that as the president, he was, you know, trying to um, uh, take care that, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the that our elections had integrity and, and all of that kind of stuff. And he's using the Department of Justice to um, uh, investigate and, and kind of make those types of arguments, um, which hopefully we will explain in further detail in, in future lawfare pieces. Um, but I, I, I want to make sure that it's clear to everyone who's listening that, you know, Fonnie Willis will still prosecute this case if it is removed to federal court. Um, you know, whenever a case is removed under 1442, um, it, it doesn't change which crimes Trump is charged with under state law or, or others. Uh, it, it just changes the forum. Um, so it still will be Fannie Willis and her team who are prosecuting the case, um, but it will be you know, in federal court before a federal judge. And it's also really important to point out here that you know, there's been a lot of commentary about how removal might be something that would be a threat to Fonnie Willis's case because it would involve a more conservative jury pool in the Northern District of Georgia. But actually, if you look at the jury plan within the Northern District of Georgia, this case would most likely go to the Atlanta division, which pools from a very similar jury pool that that exists in Fulton County. Um, so I don't think that in terms of the the jury issues that Fonnie Willis might be concerned about, I don't think that that is as big of a deal as as it's been made out to be. Um, I also would you know point out that in terms of just the efficiency and getting the case to trial, um, you know, it, I think it might go quicker in federal court because um, in Fulton County, we've seen that in these big RICO cases, just the kind of administration of getting through jury selection in the YSL case, which is a similarly large case, has taken, you know, over six months. And so we might see just kind of something more fast paced if it's in the Northern District of Georgia. 
Um, but uh, that is to be seen whether or not it gets removed. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just to be clear, the standard for removal, Trump didn't meet it in New York. You think he's likely to meet it here. What is the what is the standard and why do you think that uh, this case falls on the other side of the line from the New York case and with respect to removal? Right. So, I mean, the standard is like you you have to show, make a plausible showing that, you know, you were a, a federal official at the time of the alleged conduct um, and that the conduct that you took was was taken under um, color of your federal office. So, you know, you um, were doing something at least that that could be construed as within your lawful authority. Right. Um, and then and then uh, you also have to raise a you know plausible federal defense. So that would mean raising something like an immunity that you might have as a federal official. There is a, a, a doctrine called supremacy clause immunity um, that is basically you know what we think uh, Trump would um, kind of you know, be uh, raising here. Um, so I, I I think that, uh, you know, in terms, like I said, it, it's something that um, I know that we will be writing about in the future at Lawfare, but I think that the New York case is just, the the conduct is just very um, there. You know, it's, it's much more, uh, it doesn't have as close of a connection to the federal office. Um, you know, it, Trump was kind of, saying that uh, he was, um, you know, making these payments to Michael Cohen to get his uh, affairs in order in order to be, um, I, I think the argument was in order to, uh, 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 you know, fulfill his duties under the emoluments clause or something like that. And it, it really was just uh, an argument that just did not have the nexus between the federal office and what you do as the president. Um, versus what you do, you know, kind of as a candidate. Um, and, and here there's just a lot of the conduct. Some of it is more, you know, the question of whether it's a political candidate ac action or a presidency action. Um, and so those kinds of things will certainly be raised. Um, but, you know, I, I think that Trump just has a much um, closer nexus between his federal office and the conduct that is alleged here. That doesn't mean to say he will, you know, be able to obtain immunity under the Supremacy Clause immunity doctrine. Um, but because the standard or the threshold for removal is just you just have to be able to kind of make an initial showing or initial plausible claim to those things. Um, you know, I think that the removal aspect of it is is potentially um, uh, something that Trump will be able to succeed on. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent 
potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. All right, we're going to go to audience questions. Uh, for those who are watching on YouTube, the audience that gets to ask the questions are our the audience of our uh, material supporters uh, who are uh, with us live on Zoom. Uh, you can become a material supporter at uh, uh, lawfaremedia.org slash support. And you should do that because uh, we are supported by listeners. We don't go all NPR on you and have pledge drives, but that doesn't mean uh, you shouldn't, uh, you know, pledge. All right. Anonymous, we do have some nice merch, though. We do have first-rate merch. We even may bring back the material support shirt someday. Um, all right. Anonymous attendee asks, how does Fonnie Willis, elected by the citizens of and serving as district attorney for Fulton County, have jurisdiction to pursue crimes committed in the state, Brad Raffensperger's perfect call, in another county, voting machines in Coffee County, and even other states outside of Georgia? Okay, so I will, uh, I'll take a crack at this and then I turn it over to Scott. So the answer is she doesn't um, have jurisdiction. She has jurisdiction to uh, pursue crimes in Fulton County. The crime that she is pursuing in Fulton County includes, among other things, um, uh, a, a claim of racketeering. Uh, and when you make a racketeering uh, claim, you are allowed to describe the activities of the criminal organization, which in this case go beyond the borders of Fulton County and in fact the borders of the state of Georgia. Um, so 
that I think is the answer, but of course it puts a premium on the question of whether she's really describing a racketeering organization and also whether she's able to um, whether she's able to describe it in a fashion that's coherent enough to be cognizable under the statute. Scott, what uh, what have I left out? I think that's right, more or less, for the RICO charge. Um, for the other 40 charges, she's very careful to allocate, uh, to, to describe uh, a connection between those charges and Fulton County um, in each of the counts. So the Coffee County uh, charge uh, charges, I should say, are tied to Fulton County because of the contract that was entered into with the purported auditing company, um, which was done in Fulton County. Uh, the Raffensperger call, they say that was taken in Fulton County. Um, so they actually are pretty deliberate and conscious about tying this. Now, maybe some of these won't withstand scrutiny. Uh, that's possible. I don't know you know, what, how the Georgia courts think about these jurisdictional sort of lines. Um, but uh, she's very careful to do that throughout the rest of the charges. And the RICO one, again, is, is so broad, it intersects with Fulton County all over the place. And usually with a conspiracy, it's not that the entirety of the thing has to be within the prosecutor's jurisdiction. It's that uh, you know a slice of it does. Um, so I, I don't I, I would be surprised if there are any you know, huge jurisdictional loops uh, here. Obviously, she's leaning fairly forward in these charges. Maybe a few of these have a little bit of a stretch of jurisdiction that somebody may raise an issue with, but they've obviously gotten thought to it and have arguments as to why they're all within jurisdiction. You could see those in the indictment. All right. Uh, Zach, the floor is yours. Um, I, I mean, basically, just my, my question is, now that uh, the Georgia case is in play, um, one of the sort of lingering issue seems to be uh, Judge Cannon in Florida. And I'm just wondering, I, I've heard of cases in the past where federal cases in different jurisdictions are, are consolidated into one. Is there any chance that Florida would be consolidated into D.C. or, I guess, D.C. into Florida in order to make it more efficient for the purpose it, of the, the prosecutions? I can give you a one word answer on this. No. And the reason is that um, you have a, you know, it is a constitutional requirement that uh, of venue and the prosecutors don't think they have venue in DC. Now, could a, could Trump theoretically waive that? Yeah, but he's not going to because then he would have to give up uh, what he perceives probably correctly as a more favorable jurisdiction and judge and uh, rather than a less favorable one. So that's not going to happen. Those cases are separate and will remain separate. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Auntie. So before, uh, you know, uh, before we go on, I have to just say Auntie Ruakonen is one of the uh, most faithful uh, listeners of, uh, and of, of Lawfare Live from the very beginning has always joined at absurd hours of the night from Helsinki, uh, Finland. And this morning, I happened to be in Helsinki, Finland, and I went for a long walk with Auntie, who showed me all around uh, the government and downtown area. Uh, so uh, a pleasure to see you, sir. And uh, uh, please uh, uh, proceed with your question. Thank you, Ben. So I was wondering if uh, Anna could paint us a picture of uh, how functional the uh, Fulton County Courthouse would be if, if it were actually the venue of, of this trial. Thank you. 
Oh, thank you so much for that question. You know, I love complaining about uh, the various courthouses where Trump is um, being uh, prosecuted and how they're not fit for public office, particularly Fort Pierce. Um, so I, this this courthouse is really excellent um, in terms of uh, public access and media access. Um, you know, the courtrooms are are not uh, particularly huge, um, but they are spacious. Um, and uh, the most importantly, I think for public and media access, you know, there's a lot more opportunities for media to kind of transmit information and videos and audio to people. Um, you know, I know that several folks, uh, uh, several of the lawfare editors on this live have uh, d various differing views about whether or not it would be appropriate to broadcast the trial. Um, but it seems like here um, there's a very good chance that it, it potentially will be broadcast um, and, and able to, you know, be streamed. Um, you know, yesterday when the indictment was handed up, all members of the media were there and we were recording, we were sending photographs. Um, so I, I think that they're, you know, one of the big differences between this case and the federal cases and then, you know, maybe even the New York case is that there will be some very good public access opportunities. Um, and, you know, I, I think so I think that would be my uh, um, summary of the appropriateness of the courthouse. Um, it, that is obvious. Obviously, very different though if it's removed to federal court because federal court rules will apply. Um, and in the Northern District of Georgia, you know, it's one of those courthouses where you can't bring your phone in, you can't um, transmit any information. So we'll be back to kind of what applies in in Fort Pierce, um, where you know it's not until afterward that everyone has to run out and and spread the news. Yeah, I mean, you you really if you followed Anna's work bouncing from court to court. Fulton County is the, the most, and Georgia in general, Georgia State Court is the most derangedly open court. And the federal court rules are by far the most restrictive. And so, you know, you're, you would be going from, you know, a, an environment in which they literally named all the grand jurors, you know, in case you want to go harass any of them, they're all named in the, in the indictment. Um, you know, which is crazy. Um, but um, they, they've gone from from that. They would be going from that environment to an environment in which you can't even bring a bring a phone in. And you can't you know, in most in many courts, you can't live tweet from uh, from from the building at all. So Matt asks, there has been a lot of speculation that Mark Meadows will testify as a witness in the federal case over election interference. Does the fact that he is now charged as a defendant in the Georgia case make that unlikely? It seems hard to imagine that he could testify in one case without seriously incriminating himself in the other. So this goes exactly to the point that Quinto was making earlier, uh, that the absence of coordination, um, uh, you know, that can be a real problem. And there is a solution to this problem, which is, you know, presumably if he's a cooperating witness in the federal case, uh, he could be a cooperating, you know, uh, 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 plea uh, uh, agreement person in the context of the state case. And sometimes federal prosecutors will go to state prosecutors and say, hey, we need this. 
person, uh, you know, can we facilitate a plea agreement? Um, but that's exactly the kind of uh, situation that Quinta is referring to. And every single one of those situations needs to be uh, adjudicated and resolved on an individual basis. There's no global solution to that. Quinta, did I, uh, do you have stuff to add? Did I leave anything out? No, I I think that's right. I mean, I should add that if the if he testified in in Georgia, if he say flipped in Georgia, and then there's this question of whether he testified in federal court. I think there's there's there is a question of whether he could be compelled uh, with use immunity, which is statutory as opposed to an agreement. And the if if he was testifying under use immunity, then the standard is a little. It would be a little bit easier, although not much, for him to to get off the hook in the other jurisdiction um, because of a case called United States versus Castigar. Um, so I I hope Anna was nodding. I hope I haven't garbled this too much. It's very complicated, and I apologize to anyone listening who knows this uh, far better than I do. Um, but the, the long and the short of it is that then I think you're correct with the smallest of small asterisks. Yeah, so I think you just answered John's question, but uh, uh, John, uh, if you uh, if Quinta did not adequately answer it, please let us know. Well, thank you, Ben. I, I think Quinta's answer was a little confusing, uh, and maybe it just helps for me to restate it, which is restate my question, which is as I understood it, generally speaking, if you're granted immunity in the federal system, you cannot then choose to take the fifth, regardless of your exposure somewhere else. And so the, like, the question is, is that wrong or is that, does that change here? I also have a small other follow-up if I might after. Yeah, I think the answer is, you know, a federal grant of immunity, uh, of use immunity, which can compel you uh, uh, to testify, uh, does shield you against the use of that by other jurisdictions. Right, which is separate from a cooperation agreement, which does not. Exactly. And the small follow-up is on the question of access to the trial. I do want to note that uh, federal courts do have something called real-time transcripts. It's not clear to me exactly uh, whether you can take those outside the court and what the process is and what the judge might think about it. But at least theoretically, it's conceivable that real-time transcripts for a, a Trump federal case could be accessible to the world if someone chose to publish them. Yeah, and I that's a good point. I mean, I will say, though, that typically, I mean, maybe this is different in other jurisdictions, and I'm not familiar in the Northern District of Georgia how it works, but with those real-time transcripts, often you are having to pay for those services. Um, that makes it difficult for, you know, uh, organizations like lawfare, nonprofits, um, you know, the big media organizations can do that and then can report based on that. But, um, you know, it, it typically is is something that is an expensive service um, and, and not something that beyond media organizations, most folks would be willing to pay for who are, you know, just private individuals who want to read the transcripts directly. Um, potentially, a court would be able to authorize, you know, real time transcripts for free for the public. But we've seen in the other cases that those transcripts, you know, they've just been uh, kind of going about it in the way they usually do, where you have to buy them and, um, you know, they're not available on PACER for for some time. And so I, I'm a little bit doubtful that maybe um, courts would be willing to do that, but you, one would hope. 
you know, I think someone would have to pay. They cost around a dollar a minute. It's like $2 a page. But I would also imagine a bunch of media organizations might get together and come up with some mechanism to publish those transcripts for everybody. But it's just something to think about. Thanks. Excellent. Speaking of longtime supporters of uh, Lawfare Live, both John and Pauline are, uh, have been with us from the beginning. Pauline, the floor is yours. Hi. Um, my question is, if the case is removed to federal court and Trump is convicted, does that open the possibility of a presidential pardon? Thank you. That's right. That's so I, I mean, I will say, no, it does not open the question of a presidential pardon at all. Um, you know, like I said, it's it's a conviction under state law. Uh, yeah. So she, he would still be prosecuted. It was just tried in federal court. Right. So it, it's just the venue that is changed uh, of federal court versus um, state court uh, in the actual physical courthouse and the you know judge who presides over it. Um, I, I think that federal evidentiary rules would apply as well. Um, but, you know, nothing about the substance of the state law um, or the fact that it's brought under state charges is supposed to be affected by removal. Um, so it, it would still be a, if if Trump or others are convicted, it would still be a state conviction. Um, and that would mean that Georgia's laws around pardons would apply. And in Georgia, you know, there's an independent five person uh, pardon body. Um, it's not the governor. Um, you know, it's this it's this board. Um, so it, it, it would not be the case that uh, Trump would be able to federally, you know, as if he becomes president or if someone else does, that he would be able to be pardoned um, uh, be, uh, because it's a state conviction. And this also answers anonymous attendees um, uh, question about whether removal to state court would prevent Fonnie Willis from pursuing Georgia crimes that are not federal crimes? The answer is no. The point of removal, just for those who are confused about what the point is, is that uh, the federal government, Congress got worried that, you know, states could respond to unpopular federal policies by basically indicting federal officials and hauling them into court. And so while they couldn't tell federal of state courts what you can make a crime in the state of Georgia, they could say, hey, if you indict a federal official, the federal official at least gets to say, I want to be tried in federal court. Um, and so that's the point of it. It doesn't change the substance of the charge at all. Okay, we're going to take two more questions, Graham and Debbie, and then we are going to wrap up. Graham, the floor is yours. Great. Thanks very much. Um, so one thing that I think was refreshing to a lot of us about this indictment was that it included uh, a lot of people who we have heard have been involved, uh, but were uh, unindicted in the federal indictments. Um, but there are some people we've heard about who were not indicted. Um, one of them that comes to mind is Lindsey Graham. Uh, does anybody know anything about his status or others who were involved in some of the phone calls to Georgia officials? Yeah, so one of the things that we don't know is precisely what was said in the conversation between Lindsey Graham and uh, Brad Raffensperger. Um, and so I think it's fair to say, you know, she 
Uh, Fonnie Willis did eventually procure Lindsey Graham's testimony. She clearly had Brad Raffensperger's testimony and so, and she did not ultimately bring a case. And so I think that's a uh, actually a fairly good in, indication since you have a pretty aggressive prosecutor here, fairly good indication that whatever Lindsey Graham uh, did is probably on the, uh, at, at least within the judgment of the prosecutor that a jury is unlikely to find that he violated the law there. Uh, so, you know, I think it's an interesting contrast with Mark Meadows, who does not appear to be facing federal charges, but she did charge, um, clearly thought about what Lindsey Graham's status was and didn't charge him. All right, we are going to wrap up. Um, I see that the last question that I anticipated was actually sort of more of a comment. Um, and so we're going to skip over that one. Um, this has been a, uh, a special edition of the Lawfare podcast. Our audio engineers on this are the great Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo and the great Anna Hickey of Lawfare. Uh, hey, folks, you know, if you're watching this on YouTube and you're like, why do these lucky people get to answer questions and I don't? Or if you're sitting there listening to the podcast and you're asking yourself that question, I have an answer for you. And it's that they are material supporters of Lawfare. They uh, help keep the site going. And uh, as of yet, you do not. And you can change that. You can change it right now. Come into the light. Uh, lawfaremedia.org slash support. Uh, we are bringing you... Uh, an incredible set of materials that nobody else does. And we are uh, reader supported. And uh, this is stuff is really, really labor intensive to produce. As you see in events like this, we, have an, we bring an amazing amount of expertise to the table from diverse perspectives and diverse uh, methodologies. And it's a super, super intensive process. So please uh, consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare and uh, join us on the, uh, the Zoom side the next time we do one of these, which will be Friday because we are doing the Trump trials and tribulations at 4 p.m. Eastern time every Friday. This episode of the Lawfare podcast is edited by Kara Schillen, our music is always performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.